Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today, I'm with Christina Leosis at the Take On Board podcast, and Christina is on the board of the Royal Women's Hospital with me, and we have just exited a meeting of our audit committee, and it's her final audit committee. Unfortunately, she's leaving us because she's hit her maximum term. So we are going to have a fabulous conversation today talking about a range of things from the Royal Commission into financial services and the outcomes there, about risk, which I know is a passion for Christina, about audit committees and what makes them effective, and I'm sure we will get on to a whole range of other things. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Christina. Thank you, Helia. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm so pleased you are too. So firstly, just tell us a bit about you. Tell us a bit about your bio. I've been in financial services for over 30 years. Uh, My background, I'm a chartered accountant. I'm an FCA. Uh, Started life off doing actuarial studies, believe it or not. Applied maths and chemistry background and found myself uh, in superannuation very early in my career uh, during the 1980s. So I've worked for many large firms and small firms as well. Uh, Started life off at... National Mutual, who's now no longer, doing triennial actuarial reviews. Uh, Worked for Ernst & Young for about four years in tax. That was probably a very interesting job from the viewpoint that it's taught me life skills in terms of tax planning and structuring. And then on to Mercer. Uh, Worked for Mercer for nine and a half years and learnt a lot about superannuation and client interactions there. And then I became CFO of CBUS in their infant stages, helps establish a lot of their controls and processes. Telstra Super for four years. And uh, I've been on the Royal Women's Hospital Board for nine years as a director and two years as a consultant on finance and audit committee. And I've enjoyed every moment. 
we both worked together at the YWCA where you How were one of my... How could you forget that time, Christina? I was thinking if you didn't cover it, I would raise it later. Probably one of my favourite roles. Did that for, I think it was eight months, and that was really a transformation piece for the board, and we're very proud, both of us, I'm sure, as to where we've gotten to uh, with the YWCA, great organisation. I first met Christina when I was a non-executive director at YWCA Victoria, and we needed somebody to come in and essentially to sell the hotel, sell one of our major assets and set us up for the future. So we needed somebody to come in and do a 12-month transformation piece. And Christina, that's how I met her in the interview and she clearly impressed us because we gave her the job. Yes, and uh, the other roles that I've, I've done recently, I tried to move away from superannuation, chief financial officer and chief operating officer of a IT platform provider in Australia and New Zealand who have gone on to fantastic things in the UK and Europe called FNZ and a small startup who aren't that small anymore called Sargon Capital helped establish their governance frameworks. Uh, yeah, at the moment I'm working for one of our big banks, helping them in risk oh. post-Royal Commission. Well, we will get into that in just a moment because it's a fantastic way for you to lend us your experience from both banks and the Royal Commission. But just before I get there, I'd love to know, what was your earliest experience of governance? My earliest experience of governance would have been at National Mutual where, and I won't talk about what the fund was, but it was a little fund with about 10 members and it was my job to wind that fund up and it was a defined benefit fund. So what we used to do was what you called equitable share calculations in those days. The fund had been open for about six or seven years and all the members got 125% of their vested benefit which on top of their vested benefit which uh, ended up being a great uh, deposit for one of the members who then became a very dear friend of mine and I realised that it really wasn't set up for the sole purpose of providing superannuation benefits. <laughs> so very early in the piece I realised that where you've got money and when you're in financial services there's always a temptation. Other early memories are OSA which was the predecessor to APRA and the regulations that came with OSA, uh, that, that was back in 86, 87. Yeah, very long time ago now. So they were the first attempts at governance. But, you know, back then, superannuation was really the domain of corporates and there weren't too many Australians who were actually covered by super. So to actually see the advent of the industry funds and the for-profit funds and where that's gotten to, even going back to when I was at CBUS originally in 2002, it's just light years from where it was. So really exciting mm. to see where the industry's gone. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it'll get to in the next five years. Because, mm. yeah, we're talking trillions of dollars now. And I remember... When I joined CBUS, it was a $4 billion fund. Aussie Super was called STA and ARF, and they had, I think, about a billion dollars apiece. And to think of them in the multi-billions and the complexities and bringing investments in-house, it's fascinating and amazing and it's wonderful for Australia mm. and Australians. So you've got a long history in 
the financial services. So it would be remiss of me not to therefore ask you what your reflections are around the Financial Services Royal Commission and financial sector and governance and what that means for us as directors. It's interesting. I think the Royal Commission only really just touched at the highest level as to what's really going on. And the most interesting part about it was that we're all expecting vertical integration to be pulled apart as a result of the Royal Commission. But I think the right decision was made to allow market dynamics to work through. Vertical integration. Can you talk about what that actually means? It means that an organisation, let's say, for example, a bank, is allowed to sell products to its customers. I think the way to look at it is multiple cuts of profit through the process because there are different ways of doing all of that. What's interesting is that culturally across the industry, it was acceptable practice. And this is not about retail funds or industry funds because each sector's got its issues and it's got its strengths. So it's about conflicts of interest and managing conflicts of interest. That's what it's all about. And really understanding that when you've got a profit-making organisation and industry funds say that they're for profit, it's just where the money goes. That's not the distinction in my mind. What the distinction is, is are we providing the best member outcome or customer outcome And that's the focus. And that's the question that everyone who works in the organisation, regardless of level, needs to ask themselves and regardless of role. And that's the cultural aspect. And that's what the regulators have been talking about, that the culture is set from the top. And there are pieces... I think there's one particular piece that was done by Helen Rao from APRA where basically they're saying that directors and the board right, as a sole governing body, sets the culture from the top. And I think that's the biggest takeout for me in terms of the recent history, both Royal Commission and regulatory-wise. I mean, the regulators were... They were given a hard time at mm. the Royal Commission as well. And it's not about over-regulation. I think that's another outcome. It's about doing things differently. And, yes... The posture, the regulatory posture has changed as a result, which it needed to. But I think everyone's finding their way. And what I'm picking up is I know where I work, there's really good intent to actually get it right. You know, and often as customers, I mean, I'm a customer, banking customer, and no one really likes the banks. However, you know, People getting up at the highest level, people losing their jobs, people getting up there and saying, we're sorry and really meaning it. And even seeing people within the bank who work in the bank being really quite upset about the whole outcome. But it gets back to the short-term nature of earning a return for investors as opposed to the running a business or a product And it's that conflict between providing member best outcomes versus short-term investor returns. I mean, my reading of the Royal Commission, the themes that come out very strongly echoing exactly what you've said is around culture and around that conflict between essentially shareholder returns or customer returns. 
How do you balance those things up? It's changing the focus and having the right discussion. You get the product right, you get the financial advisors thinking the right way and the quality of advisors. A particular organisation that I know, a bank, are talking about setting up a centre of excellence in respect to supporting financial advisors, including independent advisors, advisors you know, being able to sell the best product which is in the best interest of members. So, again, focusing through member outcomes. APRA has recently issued SPS. It's a superannuation practice statement around member outcomes and a superannuation provider ensuring Mm. and proving to yourself that what you're providing is in, it's providing the right member outcomes Mm. and measuring different funds against those member outcomes. Apples with apples, it's that comparison. I think investment returns is an area that really confuses people. I'm going to use this as an example because from a media perspective, there's been a lot of focus, and even with the Royal Commission, on fees, both investment fees and administration fees. But there's no universal way to compare apples with apples from an investment perspective. And there's been a lot of fight back by funds in terms of providing measurements against certain benchmarks. So they all compare themselves to each other, but we're not even comparing some it's gross returns, other net returns. Mm. My view is that we should re- we should report investment returns net of tax and net of administration or investment fees. Okay. And it should be over the longer term rather than shorter term because that's what's important. Yeah. Now, we know that investment returns of the past are no indication of investment returns of the future, but... At the end of the day, that's all you've got. I mean, this idea of the top 10 funds, I think, is a silly idea. But I think you need to provide investors, customers, members, whatever you call it, with enough information for them to be educated in being able to determine where they want to invest, ultimately. And so what's the board's role in that? What's the board's role in... in supporting these sorts of industry changes or in making them happen within their own organisation? The boards have a leadership function in that respect. I think half the problem is that there are many people on boards who don't have that industry-specific experience and I believe in diversity so you can't have everyone having industry-specific experience but I think we need a few more people with that investment type experience and exposure. I think that boards need to rather than follow each other show some leadership and actually take control and say you know what we're going to start measuring our performance against passive benchmarks and have that honest discussion that we're not performing rather than allowing certain management marketing campaigns which every fund has been the top performing fund Mm. through this period. And the reason for that is they choose the period over which they've been top performing. Damned lies and statistics, huh? Exactly. And that's understandable but if... We had a structure and I think that's where the regulators also need to step up and provide guidance 
because I don't think they've got their mind around it either. It's not an easy area. I mean, one of the issues is that fund managers have to show their attribution, which means how they've performed against benchmarks. Has it been alpha, which means returns that have been that are not market-based, it's the decision-making by the fund manager. And so that's all measured, but that's not reported. And then you've got decisions that are made by the chief investment officers and the investment committees of the funds, but that's never, ever disclosed. Now, that's like opening the kimono, and that's quite challenging. And I think there's a lot of difficulty there, and there's been a lot of fight back because people have been concerned Do we need to wait for the regulator? Does it need to be a regulated environment or shouldn't boards just be saying our customers and potential customers? So boards... And that's why I think where it starts is changing the structure. And whilst the equal representation model in superannuations board has served us very well, and there are some fantastic people on all these boards, it's about diversity with certain experience and it's getting that balance right and we can't go too far one way where you just get everyone who's left the industry going on these mm-hmm. industry fund boards because basically you're then getting management who have now become board directors just touting the same old mm. same old mm. so i'm very mindful and diversity to me does not mean whether it's females or males mm. it's age right we need young people We need people from different ethnic backgrounds. We need people with different view of themselves, really. Sexuality, all of that. My thinking about this is it's around gender equality. So we need to have equality on boards of men and women and we need to have diversity. Yes. So that we're not just replacing all the old white men on boards with old white women on boards but or just ensuring on some boards that we have some men from different cultures or men of different ages, but we have that both of those things, gender equality and a really good mix of people of different ages, different cultures, different thinking styles, different experiences, so that around the table you've got a really robust conversation. And that became really apparent to me because I always thought of diversity as getting more women on boards. Mm. And it was only once I actually sat the AICD course, which I did recently, as you know, Halia, that it really got me thinking around actually why that's really important. And it gets back to different perspectives and that can be quite challenging. So going back to your original question about what makes a good board, I think it's about having different opinions and being in a respectful environment where those opinions can be discussed and it doesn't matter in a lot of ways how technical something is because as you know we started off at the YWCA with a group of very intelligent women who had had absolutely no exposure I think one of the questions I was asked was what is a stock Mm. and yet we had that group of women come up very quickly up to speed within three months to make some fantastic decisions around investment policies investment governance frameworks appointing uh, a particular philanthropic fund manager to take the why Mm. to a different level. That's always stuck with me. So having that level of diversity really... I mean, there's lots of evidence around that level of diversity Mm. around the table really encourages critical thinking and better thinking. You'll get no argument out of me on that because I know risk for you is one of your passions 
and for lots of people it's not a passion. And your enthusiasm and absolute joy for risk is, well, it's a sight to behold, to be honest. So I'm wondering, in relation to risk, what are your reflections for directors of boards? Because we all need to know risk. We know we can't just look at Christina in the corner and go, Christina's got it covered. What are your reflections for directors? What should they be looking for? Really, risk is about things making sense. It's about control. And it can be done quite simplistic. Some of the best risk managers, and I don't consider myself to be in this category, are able to look at different situations and be very quick to summarise succinctly what's actually going on. And it's really about getting to the bottom of, rather than all these fancy processes and you know, reports and colours... What is truly the underlying issue that can basically bring this whole house of cards mm. unstuck, if it is a house of cards? Mm. Because the more complex something looks and the more padding it has around it sometimes means that you probably haven't even gotten anywhere close to what the real underlying issue is. And it's also about that emotional intelligence, I think, to be able to say and just look at management and know when they're uneasy about something and being able to ask them the question, like, what's keeping you awake at night? And you'll find that you see the shoulders drop and they'll go, well, here's what I'm really worried about. And often that isn't something that's controlled and it can be quite easily controlled when you all put your minds around it. So what's always fascinated me about risk is... You think when you've got everything in front of you that you've got it all worked out and then out of the blue comes this issue, right? Mm. And it's being able to feel when someone's actually not telling you the truth and being able to free them up to go, okay, we're in it together. Come on, let's work through this. Mm. So that relationship, you can't get too close to management, however... That working relationship, especially with the CEO, is absolutely critical. So to me, risk management really depends on the culture of the board. And that's, again, what's come out of a lot of this Royal Commission stuff. Mm. I was just thinking that, as you said, that culture around a risk committee or an audit committee or around the board table, culture is key. So I'm wondering what you've seen at a board level that works well. If culture starts at the top, what are the things that you've seen at a board level that works well for building the right culture? The chair is absolutely critical in providing the environment of trust to be able to put something out there and that's something that we have felt at the women's very strongly, I think. It's okay to say something and, you know, everyone will just go, no, you're wrong, but to feel safe to be able to do that and then you'll find that no, a person's not necessarily wrong. They're just looking at it through a different lens or perspective and being able to work with that. I feel very blessed that I've been able to work with people on this board and there have been changes throughout, but I think it's the chair and we've had a number of chairs on the women's and each one has been great at giving us permission to be honest and we trust, like I trusted throughout, that I'd be listened to, I'd be heard and that I could take a risk. 
So really encouraging those robust conversations at board. The difficult conversations. And I think the other thing is that there aren't all these side conversations. Occasionally you speak to you know, someone on the board to make sure that you've got it right and that you're not overreacting or advice as to how to handle a particular situation. But when it comes to the important things and, you know, there have been some pretty meaty issues on this board. Recent one in the last couple of years that we've both had to undertake together, I had trust throughout even though it could have been potentially damaging to each director and the board. I trusted that we were going to get through it okay and I trusted management and I knew that every other director felt the same way. You're right, there is a level of trust in that room, both of being able to say things and rely on each other. For me, and also, sorry, the decision-making. So when we make a decision, decisions don't always go our way. It's a united decision and once we make the decision, we all work together, regardless of whether we supported the decision or not, to make it work and that's critical. Which is, again, part of that key culture, being able to have your say... I think you said this, knowing that you've been heard, the decision is, might be something separate to that and then having that boardroom solidarity around that decision so that outside the boardroom everyone's singing from the same song sheet. When we make a decision, I think we're acting as one. It's the board. So it's very interesting mentally I know that when we make a decision, I'm not making a decision as an individual but I'm making a decision as a board director also being able to stand up, I think, to say when you do disagree, no, I disagree with that, and you're asked why. The underlying theme of our conversation has really been around culture, but we've talked through the Royal Commission and some of your experiences there and reflections. We've talked through risk and some of your reflections around that. What are the key takeaways that you want people to have from this conversation? That it's important to stay true to who you are from, well, I'm not going to say from a moral perspective, but around your own ethics. When you're a director, sometimes you have to put the well-being of the organisation before your own well-being. And so there are personal conflicts that come into play. And when I talk about personal conflicts of interest, I'm not talking about you know being offered a, a gift or anything like that. I'm talking about... In my role as a chief risk officer, there have been situations where there's information that comes to light that if you don't bring it to the table, to the CEO or audit committee or whatever, it's detrimental to the organisation and to the customers. Well, where I was, it was members. And it may in fact mean that you cannot do your job there anymore if it's ignored. And sometimes that's a decision that has to be made. Mm. Speak up. Mm. It's a key skill for board directors. Exactly. And that's not an easy skill. Mm. And when you become a director, you don't necessarily look at who your fellow directors are. And so I think the key takeaway is for people who aren't on boards and wanting to go on boards, I think it's relatively safe in the environment of health where, you know, where we are. But in different organisations, make sure you understand the nature of the business. Make sure that you understand who your fellow directors are because you're all in it together. Oh, that might be a conversation I come back to have with you around due diligence and the right due diligence to, to do. 
So then I'm wondering if there's a resource that you'd like to share with the Take On Board community. It might be a book or a podcast or a TED Talk, something that you might like to share that would be of value to the Take On Board community. Well, I'd say if you've got any time, get a hold of the Royal Commission, the actual report, the closing report. The first report's interesting in its own right, but the closing report is quite easy to read. I know it's big, but you don't have to read it all. Even if you just read the introduction, the first piece, it really gives you a really good feel for how it was just... It's like the Swiss cheese where all the holes line up, (laughs) you know, Mm. and, you know, minutes from disaster and all those types of things. But what I find fascinating is the fact that culturally... Some of us would have felt uncomfortable with certain things, but no one spoke up. And I think that's just human dynamics. Yeah. And the frog boiling. Yeah. Got a bit warmer, a bit warmer, a bit, a bit warmer. warmer oh, but that's what it's done. Oh, I can't do anything about it. Yeah. And as individuals, we don't. But it really is the public outcry. And I think as far as the Royal Commission went, it allowed us to recalibrate it's a recalibration so from that perspective I think it's a really good thing and I think Hayne and his team did a fantastic job in actually highlighting the points Mm. of interest in terms of what's going on and different parts of the industry do it differently but the outcomes will impact everyone the same and I truly think it will take five to ten years for it to all get better but I think we've already seen a more customer focus when it comes to the banks and providing product and providing the right product for the right people. We all talk about the Royal Commission report a lot, but not many people have read it. So I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes so yeah, people can have a look at it. And you don't have to read it all, just little bits. I mean, reading the case studies, thats that just tells you how it was done. That's not really that relevant. What's relevant? We've all lived our own case study. We don't need to read them. Right. Everybody knows somebody, has either been somebody or knows somebody. We don't need... But the stories, the personal stories, when you actually look at it from a customer's viewpoint, you know, someone who's vulnerable, who can't or doesn't have the capacity, not all of us have been either in financial service, and we all know, I mean, you know, people who are older, Mm. people who can't read or write, people who have got some form of disability. Keeping that customer perspective, again, it's a great reminder. I think the AICD is for anyone who's interested in being a director, is a fantastic place to start. And then finally, if our conversation had been a board meeting, there would be an action sheet at the end of it. What are the, you know, one, two or three things that you think should be on the action sheet from our conversation? I think in summary, it's about making sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. If you are looking at a board career, knowing and understanding and doing your homework when it comes to your fellow board members, the management team and the business and whether it is within your own risk profile, Mm -hmm. understanding that there may be times where you do need to stand up as a director and that risk management isn't a difficult tool, it's actually common sense And that there's a great enjoyment and fulfilment in actually being on a board. And it's a lot of hard work. It's not easy. And you're constantly learning. 
I think that would summarise it. Thank you My so pleasure. much for being on the Take On Board podcast today. Uh, I know people will have got a huge amount out of the conversation. I know I've got a huge amount out of it. And in fact, just because we're here, thank you for your time on the Royal Women's Board as well. I've enjoyed so much being with you there. And um Christina was my buddy when I first joined the board, so she was my port of call for questions to ask, to check on things, to find out, you know, how much I should be pushing, how much I should be pulling back, those sorts of things. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you for being the point of reference for me to Helia when it comes to just, am I overreacting? Um, how would you handle this? It's it's just been an absolute pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you. Oh, look at us wire. in our mutual admiration <laughs> society. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening. And tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.